We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. I don't like indulging in the blood just for the shock value of it. I, I don't I don't have a lot of fondness for that. And yet we are writing about a very serious topic that has claimed a lot of lives in a lot of very gruesome ways in just the last 10 years, and still does to this day. I mean, the, the Taliban retaking Afghanistan has been no picnic for anyone involved. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, and welcome back to the Secrets and Spies podcast. Today, we're going to look at a topic that's of interest to many of our listeners, spy fiction. I'm joined by my longtime friend and fellow indie spy writer, Stephen England. He joins us to talk about his decade-long career as an author. We'll be delving into his best-selling Shadow Warriors series, his writing process and influences, and how he draws inspiration from contemporary geopolitics and history. If you've been curious to get a look under the hood at how spy thrillers are made, this conversation is for you. Before we begin, all our episodes are on YouTube, and you can find the link to subscribe to that in the show notes. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for $4 or £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble where you can find cups, coasters, water bottles, and tote bags. If you enjoy this episode, please share it on your social media with friends, family, and the like. And lastly, please do leave a review on your podcast streaming app of choice. Every review juices that algorithm and helps the show get discovered by others. All the relevant links for today will be in the show notes below. Thanks so much for your support. Let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Stephen England. Hey, buddy. Thanks for coming on the pod. Hey. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. Good to be here. Happy to have you. So for the uninitiated among us, tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> well, I, uh, I've i been an author now for about, uh, oh man, I'm thinking now I actually published first book uh, December of 2009, so about uh, 13 years. So <laughs> it's been quite a ride. Yeah. So your, your first book was uh, Nightshade. The novella. Actually, the first book, which was uh, the first book, which was uh, not connected with any of my other books, uh, was a his was a kind of pseudo historical novel called Sword of Naamha. It was set ancient history, so forth. But I really got into the Shadow Warriors, uh, really got into the Shadow Warriors series with Pandora's Grave in 2011, mm-hmm. and then released Nightshade as uh, part of an anthology in. I think either late 2012 or early 2013. 
Uh, okay. And then kind of mo- once I once I released it, there was kind of this window where it kind of had a bit of exclusivity to the anthology. And then once I released it on my own, I kind of ended up moving it to the front of the series because it was a nice uh, kind of intro for readers, a little bit of uh, a taste of everything they could expect from a full-length novel. So Right, right, right. So yeah, that that, that was the, the progression there. So I guess starting with Pandora's Grave, right, which is sort of where the Shadow Warrior series, which is your sort of big, you know, landmark thing that you've been working on for the last over a decade. <laughs> Starting with that and the introduction of Harry Nichols sort of around that time, I mean, you put out Pandora's Grave, you were in your early 20s. I mean, that's very early yeah. for, for anyone to, to, to publish. So I guess um, talk us through the road to putting out that, that first novel. Well, I actually had been working with, uh, I'd actually been working with Nichols for even longer. I've probably been working with Nichols since, oof, I was probably in my mid-teens, really. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit, uh, a little bit later in the show, because it, it plays into some of the questions we were discussing the other day. But I really, when I came back to Pandora's Grave and, and wrote that story as very much his origin story, I very much wanted to so many stories in the in the genre it's not quite as uh exclusive now but it it was it was more true back then we're very much focused on kind of the lone wolf type of character and as someone who was kind of interested in the real world backing of a lot of the genre i found that kind of interesting because if you look at seals if you look at delta force if you look at any number of these elite units that often form the backdrop for protagonists in the genre, they are not geared to producing guys who are just running off and doing things on their own. Right. And so I kind of wanted to look at, I wasn't opposed to going down the, the singleton route, but I kind of wanted to take a look at how would someone get there. And Pandora's Grave and then Day of Reckoning uh, really become the story of how Nichols goes from being not just a team player but actually a team leader to being someone who's very much out in the cold and on his own, operating with no safety net, no backing, no network. And there's moments in the series as the books progress where you start to see some of the flaws of that. He makes... We, we've had a number of conversations about this, this in the past, of course, but he uh, he makes some very serious errors in later books because he's out he's out on his own. He knows only what he knows and doesn't have that backing of an agency, of an intelligence support network. Uh, and so it's kind of, in some ways, a bit of a deconstruction of the, the omniscient superhero type... Yeah. Uh, portrayal in the genre because he's good there's no there's never any real question that he's good but he is not uh he is not in anywhere near invincible and he's not he's not always right in what he in what he uh, determines by himself either yeah i mean something that that really has sort of made your book stand apart is is i think the kind of uh nuance and the depth that these stories show and and your willingness to have your protagonist and your other characters sort of walk on that gray area and not be 
so perfect. You know, like you're going to hand them a Glock and they're just going to go off and just and just fix this 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 big issue. Do you do you think it's important to 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 portray that in in the genre? I, I think so. I mean, for one reason, I think it creates a lot more uh, relatability in the character because they're they're more human in that sense. I mean, we all make mistakes. We've all gone into a situation and realized, man, I really screwed that up. I didn't didn't handle that right. Or wow, if I had known. I mean, even if you, even if you're not behaving recklessly, there's all of us have known situations that we've gone into, and we've walked back out of it and found out something later, like an hour later, that we're like, if I had known that about that person or that situation, where I would have handled that totally differently. Yeah, and I think so. I think we can all relate to that. And then I think it's also a bit of uh, the way the genre has kind of taken its own twists and turns in the past, particularly past decade, past uh, decade and a half, realizing that the what we all wanted to believe in the years immediately succeeding 9-11, uh, that the U.S. was going to go get the bad guys, go get the job done, and everything was going to be just peachy. Well, I mean, we see, we're sitting here today, and the Taliban's back in power in Afghanistan. Something went wrong somewhere, <laughs> many, many places. Yeah. And, yeah. and clearly, clearly uh, even those that go in with the best of intentions don't always know where their actions will lead. And so I think that's an important uh, balance to bring into the genre. Not necessarily, I, I've also... Uh, the genre often has gone, I think, one of two ways, either kind of the infallible all-American patriotic superhero or the Snowden side of things where the government is evil and this this hero, this lone hero is going to bring down the evil within the government. And I think the Shadow Warriors series really kind of threads a, a middle course and basically says, okay, the road's paved with good intentions, but it may well be going to hell. <laughs> and that's a good quote. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, I, in some ways, I think in, I may sometimes give uh, the characters in the books and the, the roles and they play maybe a little bit too much of a benefit of a doubt in terms of how what their motives are and the, the purity of their intentions. But I do think it's interesting to explore that in the sense of we can have the best of intentions and things can still go completely pear-shaped in a heartbeat. Uh, I think one of the best examples of that, uh, and there are quite a few, but probably one of the best examples of that in The Shadow Warriors is uh, the, the shorter novel, uh, Quicksand, I, I wrote a few years back, yeah. which is basically... Uh, a bit of a deconstruction of a drone strike and they go through endless hoops trying to make sure this drone strike only kills the people they intended to kill it doesn't claim innocent lives and things still end up completely spiraling out of control with results that none of them could have anticipated when they finally give the order to fire and <laughs> It's just, yeah, I, th I think that's an important perspective to bring in, particularly in these later years of the global war on terror, as uh, it becomes more and more clear that things did not go as planned. Yeah. I want to put a pin in that because you're sort of, I think, touching around the edge of a subject that 
I would love to get into with you in 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 a bit about like the ethics of writing in the in the spy genre. But before we get there, I wanted to sort of go back to I guess your earliest thought, whenever, wherever that was, that you wanted to be a writer and you wanted to write about you know spy fiction, geopolitical issues. Where did where did that start for you? Oh, <laughs> that's going way back. That's going way back in the midst of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we we sort of came of age, I think, at the yeah. same. I mean, we were born like a week apart from each other, so we came of exactly. age at the same yeah. time. You know, with nine eleven, with the global war on terror, and I know for me, like it was being exposed to that, and then being introduced to Clancy, specifically the Sum of All Fears, and then John Le Carre came along, yeah. and the rest was history. So, what was that <laughs> sort of journey like for you? Uh, well, I think I'd always had a fascination with reading. I've always been a voracious reader. Uh, and really, I think starting into my teens, I really started getting some exposure to the thriller genre. Ironically, though, I don't think this will surprise too many of my readers of Pandora's Grave, but ironically, my first real exposure to the thriller genre was through Clive Cussler. Okay, yeah. He's very, very much a different flavor of the thriller genre very much more escapist action and not really uh not not really uh, a lot of real world uh, scenarios or consequences or whatever else you might say uh incredible storyteller his his books are are a heck of a read but i really was introduced to the genre through him and then discovered clancy and clancy was where my lifelong fascination with military gadgets and gear and all the stuff really met fiction. I was like, oh, I love this. His characters are are pretty amazing and his knowledge of the military is is something else and I, I love this guy. Uh-huh. And so I started reading him uh quite voraciously and pretty sure pretty sure I've probably read most everything he ever wrote. <laughs> At least everything that he ever wrote. But <laughs> that uh <laughs> we'll get to that a bit <laughs> <laughs> but uh but that was that was kind of my introduction to the genre and i i really came to some of the other authors in the genre much later in the process but really had had kind of figured out what i wanted to write from those largely from those two and a few others i mean Cl- clancy had a lot of imitators in the 90s i i read yeah I read a fair number of their books. Not nothing ever quite measured up to uh, to the OG, but uh, but yeah, that was kind of where things got started. And of course, nine eleven had happened by that point in time. The world was shifting in a lot of uh, kind of dramatic ways, and uh, and yeah, I mean, we grew up through that. So it was uh, it was it was very much uh, being exposed to a lot of that environment and then yet starting to see it, I don't think go off the rails is too harsh of a word. I mean, by the time I was even old enough to join the military, I had people I knew in the military just like, joining up right now isn't a good idea. People don't know what they're doing. And yeah, <laughs> it was it was already kind of the ins- inside view of what had happened in Iraq and Afghanistan that was just like, yeah, this this is not going. Uh, this is not going the, the way it was uh, intended to, and uh-huh. uh, yeah. So I th- I think it was a lot of that uh, that exposure uh, really that kind of charted to more or less an extent my own path as I started to uh, get more and more interested in writing uh, the genre and uh, 
spent uh, spent a number of years trying to uh, write books that I uh, would write and then throw away and write and throw away, and we'll we'll get to more of that later. But <laughs> it's uh, it's been an interesting process. What was your first classy novel? Mm. That is a really good question. I I think I may have well. I remember reading Clear and Present Danger two or three uh-huh. times and not being able to get into it. Uh, I was probably 11 or 12 at the time. Yeah. I think the first one I, met, I finished was Hunt for Red October. Okay. It's possible. Either that or Red Storm Rising. I, I remember yeah. those two were very close together. But I eventually collected them all and uh, read all the all the original Ryan books. So Yeah, I think that was sort of similar to me. The, the first one was... Uh, I mean, I was sort of really into that stuff, and then yeah. some of all fears. The movie, the, the 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 Ben Affleck movie came out, and I watched that, and I was like, I was like, okay, like this is really cool. <laughs> I mean, you know, my like 11, 12 year old brain at the time. I have never watched that film. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> kind of aged, not that great, but anyway, <laughs> it's not the Harrison Ford ones. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, it was it was some of all fears. I think it was sort of the same thing that you said that like I. I had a hard time really getting into it. I think I was just still too young yeah. to really tackle yeah. it. And then at some point down the road, you're like, okay, I can do this. They're da- they're daunting books at that age. <laughs> oh, I know. They're daunting books now. <laughs> I mean, you pick up executive orders and it's like, yeah, well. <laughs> you should talk. I'm trying to write them and it's just as hard as, yeah. Anyway, so you said you sort of started a couple projects that sort of fizzled out. You know, you put down, started other things. Can you sort of talk through a little bit about what those projects were or or I guess what you learned in trying to write them and, and, and failing, frankly? Most most of them, to be perfectly honest, were Shadow Warriors. They were kind of my attempts to learn what Shadow Warriors was going to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I would say I was also a huge Hardy Boys fan growing up. And so I, I think I I think the early attempts at writing were very heavily influenced by that, by Clive Cussler, by a lot of the more uh, escapist uh, type work. And really, then uh, then Pandora's Grave was kind of my attempt to try to say, okay, all that stuff is trash, and it's not going to. I mean, some of the stuff I. One thing I found early on writing, and I don't know if you would uh, if you would share in this experience, but one thing I found very early on writing is I couldn't sustain a story past like 40, 45 pages. Yeah, I sort of felt that too. And of course now I'm looking at like 550 pages or whatever on my on my screen. I'm like, oh, you got to cut this down. But but at that point in time, I really couldn't sustain a story past 40, 50. I remember the first time I got one to yeah. get past 100 pages. Yeah. It was just amazing. And I was like, oh, this is this is actually starting to be an actual an actual book now. Uh, and it, it was kind of that fun uh, moment of discovery, as it were. But yeah, now I've yeah. got the opposite problem. <laughs> but that was but that was really uh, so all those all those stories. I mean, I I had a number of I think I think the first. I think the original first book for Shadow Warriors it kind of uh, it kind of revolved around very kind of, very much kind of an Indiana Jones Clive Cussler esque type treasure uh, in in Central America and it was it was uh, it, it was fun but it wasn't it, it wasn't something that I looked at several years later and was like oh yes this could be a key part of this new series so I kind of had to reinvent the 
reinvent the Shadow Warrior series and say, where is it starting now? Where is uh, where where do I where do I write this origin story for this character I've now been writing about for already five years or so? But I've got to take him back to his origin and kind of reboot this thing, as it were. So, so yeah, right. that was that was a good bit of the of the process there. Yeah. So you sort of you learned the craft of writing by just doing it again and Pretty again much, yeah. and again and again. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, that's sort of how it was for me. I mean, I remember that all my earlier iterations of different works, you know, like what you were saying, they're all just earlier versions of active measures, you know, and a lot of the characters there, Jack is there, Nina's there, Ryan Freeman's there, Kazanoff is there. So you're basically just trying to tell us you've had a twisted mind for a very long time. I was, yeah. So (laughs) I I started it... um, I started it, it was, I was in the sixth grade, so I was 11, this is like, what, 2001, 2002, and I took yellow loose-leaf paper off the shelf in the classroom and just started writing. I still have it. Um, it'll never see the light of day as long as I'm alive, but I still have it. Writing career begins with active larceny. Basically, yeah, 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 and you just, like you, like you said, you just kept doing it again and again and again, and I think, yeah. would you say, I mean, I like to tell people that I, I, I sort of, knew what I wanted to do at that age. I just wasn't capable of doing it. And if you took active measures now that I eventually wrote and published and gave it to six-year-old me, he would say, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what we had in mind. Do you, do you feel that way? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I would. Uh, I, think the, I think my concept for the Shadow Warrior series has evolved a lot through the years, even, even, since, even since the publication of Pandora's Grave. I mean... Right kind of the way I've I've come to look at things it's it's I, I would say it's changed a lot I think I'd, I definitely you would have blown me away if you'd if you would have told me that I'd sell more than a half dozen of the <laughs> of the books yeah but yeah I think I think it's very much been an evolving uh, evolving process yeah I, I think yeah I, that's probably I'd have I'd probably have to say that uh, very much very much more of an evolution than a a realization of exactly what what I wanted to do back then. So, about when were you done with the first really good draft of Pandora's Grave, and you were like, "Okay, this is something that's good. Like, I have something here. I can think about putting this out to the world." Like, when when was that? That was, I would say, no, actually, I, I'd say that was uh, winter, mid winter or so of uh, 2011. Okay, so you're about 21. Yeah, so so uh, so yeah, things progress pretty much on a straight line from getting done in early 2011 to publishing it in summer of 2011. Uh, so right. yeah, it was it was a pretty straightforward uh, straightforward path from that point forward. You're um, and I said this in my intro. You're an indie spy writer, so you're self published like me. Yeah. Um, what led you to choose that route over, you know, querying agents and going down the traditional path? Or did you try that in some regard? Right, right. The thought, the very thought of writing query letters scared me to death. Yeah, same. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not lying. That was, that was a lot of my impetus to, uh, to just go forward and just throw it out there and see, see what could happen. Right. Which I'd already had a little bit of experience doing that with uh, my prior uh, alternate history novel. So I kind of, I had some familiarity with that process, and I thought, well, I'll go ahead with this and see what happens. And what happened was it had a fair bit of success, and that 
yeah kind of inspired me to keep on that path so so what was that like i mean when did you know that that this did i mean i think i saw on amazon you have several hundred reviews up there as of right now yeah uh when when did you know that like you had something here that you know it, it was worthwhile to keep going with this series well i think uh i think my attitude has always been i was going to keep going with the series whether it was worthwhile or not so right <laughs> yeah uh, but when i think it was probably in uh the books really i, I really kind of caught the tail end of the kind of first indie publishing is big wave and as a result uh-huh. in in 2012 uh pandora's grave by itself with pretty much nothing else out there uh really sold well and that was that was really the first external validation of people really like this people really like this series this concept they're lo- they're waiting for book two then of course the pressure was on to actually write book two which was all kinds of fun right but uh but yeah, that was really kind of the first, uh, the first wave, as it were, which had which had faded somewhat by the time I actually got Day of Reckoning out in uh, late 2013. Yeah. Uh, but it's still continued to be well received, and I've continued to uh, sluggishly put out books since. So. <laughs> I, I I would like my readers to know that this latest book, Soon Dies the Day, the latest entry in the Shadow Warrior series. My three-day literary operation to finish that book has now been going on for several months. So, but but I do want to assure them that I will have the book finished before Putin reaches Kiev. So, it, it'll 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 be fine. <laughs> I uh, uh, I feel your pain on that one. So I mean, okay. So let's let's fast forward for about you know a decade or so. I mean, you've been doing this for a good solid you know ten years. You're up to eleven published entries in the Shadow Warrior series. Yes. Uh, a couple prequel novellas, a few other sort of projects on the side that you have. So yeah. can you take us through your process? Like, okay, like you just published a book, right? You sit down and you're like, okay, now I got to do something next. Where does that begin for you? Is it like a survey of of the world looking for stuff that interests you? Or do you look for inspiration from other writers? How does that work? Well, I typically have the next book in mind before I finish the one I'm currently working on. Uh, <laughs> when when Soon Dies the Day gets done, I already know where the next book is going to start. I know <laughs> where it's going to be set, and I have a rough idea in my head of what it's going to encompass. Uh, I think it's very much everything uh, tends to be drawn fairly heavily from what's going on in the world. In terms of the Shadow Warrior series, it's also me trying to figure out kind of where where is the next logical progression for Nichols, because it is a very character-driven series, and the books really, they, they started out, particularly in Pandora's Grave, as being very much kind of the classic globe-trotting uh, action hero, where there's all Nichols's in... America, and then he's in Iran, and then he's in Israel, and so forth. It it, it goes. It, he he crosses continents quite freely in that book, but in as the book as the series has unfolded, and he has uh, lost his team. He is more of a lone wolf. He is much more constricted in uh, in his movements and where he might find himself. And crossing borders is a lot harder for him. And so I have to I have to th- 
take those kind of considerations into play when determining, well, where is he going to be next? And uh, despite the fact that he's he's uh, going to have a somewhat novel form of transportation at the end of Soon Dies the Day, uh, that still okay. is... Uh, that still is somewhat of a constricting, uh, constricting element. Uh, but I really, I really try to look at, okay, where is, where's the next story I want to tell? How can I kind of build up to that? Because some of the prequel, the prequel shorter, shorter novels, uh, kind of foreshadow things. Uh, there, there's some, there's some definite foreshadowing in uh, Wildcard, which was the last, uh, the the last uh, prequel uh, Nichols novel I wrote and released last spring. Uh, if you read that book, you know a fair bit, whether you know that you know it or not, you know a fair bit about where the book after Soon Dies the Day is going to take place and some of the people it will involve. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so I like setting up things like that and kind of trying to bring together an organic world. Uh, one of the things I really have liked with the Shadow Warriors universe is I've continued to expand it with all these books. Like you say, 11 titles, Soon Dies the Day will be 12. I've got the two titles of uh, the Line of God trilogy that are that share the universe with the Shadow Warriors. The thing I really have enjoyed doing with those kind of interlocking series is creating this sense of personal history characters within the Shadow Warriors universe have histories with each other, and those histories impact how they interact and what they're willing to do for each other or to each other in some, in some instances. And really trying to, trying to weave that all together has been to me one of the, one of the greater joys of, of writing in the genre and writing, uh, writing the series. Uh, yeah. Trying, trying to pull all of that together. Yeah. Do you, do you outline and if no. so, what does that look like? No outlines? No. I probably need to stop that given the way given the way it's it served me with uh with this last book, but no, I don't. Considering who you're talking to here, and I'm shocked by you saying that you don't outline at all. <laughs> Even <laughs> I outline somewhat. <laughs> I've described it to people over the years as very much uh my process for approaching a book is it's kind of like I'm which this 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 analogy means so much more to me now that I'm living in Montana than I ever did on the East Coast. But okay. It's like I'm standing on a mountain, yeah. and I'm looking across a valley at another mountain, and I know I need to get to that mountain. I do not know how to get to that mountain, but I know it's there, and yep. I try to keep it in view through the trees as I hack my way through the bush with machete or something. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so yeah, and, and a lot of what a lot of what I write, and then a lot of what gets me in trouble, and means these books take longer to write than they should. Uh, a lot of what I write is trying to figure out the the snowballing consequences of the actions as my characters work through toward the end, uh, because I try, and I'm sure sometimes succeed better than others, but I try not to. I try not to force uh, characters into doing things that they would not do. There, there was this scene. I uh, there was a scene in Day of Reckoning that I I often uh, mentally uh, turn to as an example of this, where it was toward the end of the end of the book. There's a hostage situation in Las Vegas, and 
the president is involved trying to make sure this situation doesn't turn into an absolute fiasco, more at least more any more of one than it already is. And there's a scene where Nichols is on a phone on the phone with the president on the other end. And when I first wrote that scene, uh, because the president was basically ordering everyone to stand down, they were going to negotiate with the terrorists, so forth. And Nichols, Nichols was not, uh, he believed, had reason to believe the negotiations were basically a fraud and that they should go ahead and, and launch an assault to rescue the hostages. And in the first draft of that scene, I had him basically tell off the president. And then I realized, after I stepped back from that scene, that that was not Nichols. I had inadvertently slipped into Jack Bauer mode when writing that scene. Yeah. And I'd, and I'd written the scene the way Jack Bauer would do it, but I had not written the scene the way Nichols would do it. And so I went back and tore the scene apart, and I had some great dialogue that hit the cutting room floor because he wasn't going to say any of those things. Yeah. But, but what it turned out was that Nichols did what Nichols was going to do. He acquiesced to the president, hung up the phone, and went and did his own thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it it was very much more of the subtle approach of someone that's he's not flamboyant, he's not uh, he's not in your face. He's just if he needs to do something underhanded, that's that's the way he's going to do it. And he'd probably prefer to do it that way rather than uh, rather than piss everybody off openly. Right, right. So so you're more George R. R. Martin is sort of I don't know if he if he came up with this, but he sort of famously said that all in your snickering as soon as I bring up Martin. <laughs> so you're, uh, George Martin has sort of, he's, he's described the writing process outlining, I think in general is more that all writers fall on a spectrum between the architect and the gardener. Whereas yes. you know, the architect knows exactly where every little nail and board and, and light switch and everything is going to go before even a single thing gets done. Whereas a gardener sort of goes out and they go, I'm going to plant some tomatoes over here and some cucumbers over there. And, you know, if sunflowers come up where you planted tomatoes, that's an issue. But you sort of see what comes up and how it works and you kind of, you know, find your way. Yeah. And, and, and right now, and right now with Soon Dies the Day, I'm very much at the dear Lord, where did all these weeds come from stage of gardening? But yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah another way that i sort of like to look at it because i outline somewhat but i i like to sort of keep it loose because i feel like if i know exactly how everything's going to happen i get i get bored by that would, would would you say that too i would say i'm not sure bored is the word i would use i feel trapped uh -huh. if i know how, if i know how everything is supposed to go and then it feels like i have to force it into those boxes right to make it work then I feel trapped and feel like, what? Wait, what? What's going on here? Right. This isn't working. <laughs> and I don't know. It's not. It's not to say I don't write myself into some interesting boxes going about it the other way, but it seems more. It seems more natural and free flowing that way. Yeah, and I've sort of I've uh, described that process of as sort of like a road trip. You know that like they say, yeah. okay, you know, you and me, we're going to get in the car. And we're going to drive to California, right? So I have to know roughly what interstates we're going to take to get there, you know, what hotels we're going to spend the night at. But I can't tell you before we go on this road trip, oh, yeah, <laughs> we're, a car is going to break down in this state and in New Mexico 
in yeah. New Mexico. We're going to meet this really weird guy in a bar somewhere and all this stuff is going to happen to us. I can't <laughs> tell you that because the journey hasn't, we haven't gone on the journey yet. And right. To me, that journey is writing the first draft. Yeah. You know, yeah, I agree. So, yeah. so, okay. So you get a first draft done. Um, how much would you say of that first draft makes it into what is eventually published or how much gets rewritten or changed over the editing process? Usually I would say the vast majority of it. I'm not entirely certain I'll be able to say that about Soon Dies the Day. It's it's okay. been a, <laughs> it's been its own beast. But usually usually by the time I'm done a first draft, I basically know where most stuff is gonna go unless something unless something crops up in the in the edits that I I I realized that I botched something massively uh, in the first third of the book and then forgot about it, or wrote something in the second th- uh, the, or the final third of the book that uh, doesn't work because of something I forgot about early on in the in the story. Uh, yeah. Which I try to avoid those situations wherever possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but unless something like that happens, generally the story remains mostly the same. I, I don't, I don't cut massively, uh, and I don't think there's definitely been there's definitely been parts in my books where I've I've cut out plot points that didn't work or something. But that that often gets done uh in a in a mid book panic of this is not working tear it all apart and put it back together right. and then i proceed with the first draft uh so yeah normally by the time i'm actually ready to do what most people would say is the editing phase the story as a whole is fairly the way it's going to be uh right there there's not usually too many massive shifts there have you worked with other editors for I have your not, projects no. No. Yeah. Okay. Any particular reason? Just prefer to keep it in house, or have you have you considered that at some point? I have considered that. I think at this point, I, I prefer to keep it in house. It's yeah. something I, I may change my mind on in the future. But yeah, at the moment, right. it's something that's worked for me and so forth. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, beta readers, I know you have quite a a thankfully quite a loyal stable of beta readers who check out your work before it gets published i'm sure as few are going to be listening to this um <laughs> what do you when you're when you get feedback early on before the book is out yeah. what do you really look for what do you hope to hear what's most valuable to you well i hope to hear that it's a fantastic book that's better than all my previous books but <laughs> uh-huh. uh no the the i have i have developed a really great team uh, over the years deeply indebted to them they great group of people but they uh i i'm often looking for what i hear from more than one person interestingly enough because there's been sometimes when i'll i'll think uh, there was i remember one particular scene in lodestone where i had something i just absolutely loved and i thought it was so clever and I heard from, I think I had like seven or eight people on the team at that point in time. And I'm pretty certain I heard from like 60% of them on that being an issue. And I'm like, ah, okay. I apparently was not as clever as I thought I was. All right. Well, there we go. Uh, I'm, Kill I'm your darlings. Little, yeah. I'm a little less uh, inclined to uh, go take to the chopping block something that maybe just one or two people mention. But once it starts reaching a critical mass, I'm like, ugh. 
Okay, I've I've made a serious mistake here. It's it's time to uh, it's time to reconsider my own outlook on this and just deal with it. Uh, so yeah, I I like uh, I like seeing I like seeing what people respond to in the story. I mean, how do different people provide you with different levels of of uh, detail and their feedback? But I, I've always really interested to see what people respond to, what characters resonate with them, uh, beyond the protagonist, because, I mean, if if you've done your job even halfway well, people are going to respond to your protagonist. But but how does the supporting cast strike them? How how do they respond to the people that kind of come in and out of the story uh, or play uh, more minor roles? I remember... Uh, I remember... A str- uh, I remember feedback a number of years ago with... Uh, the character of Stephen Flayhardy and uh, and embrace the fire, and I got feedback on him that just completely matched everything I felt about that character, but hadn't actually put on the page. And that was just a priceless golden moment to me of okay, he's hitting exactly the way he's meant to hit, and they're reading the subtext exactly the way it's meant to be read. Uh-huh. And that that stuff that's when you just kind of sit back and you're like this is why I enjoy being a writer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those moments are always great. But yeah, it it's really seeing how it's really seeing how things hit people. Do they are they are they landing the way they in, were intended to land? And if not, then you've got to go back to the chopping block again and sort it all out. Right. Do you would you would you say that the Shadow Warrior series is primarily the journey of Harry Nichols? I would say in large part, yes. Certainly, certainly the main books are. <laughs> yeah. I would say they're very much kind of his journey from, uh, like I mentioned earlier, very much being a a bit of a, a, very much a team leader, very much a team player in the CIA, to very much being a lone wolf. And uh, they, uh, it's interesting because going back and writing some of the prequel novels, I've taken a little bit of a, I I think at least it's a little bit of an unconventional uh, approach because Harry, like most protagonists in this genre, has his own uh, battles with with bureaucrats. And there's some people in the CIA bureaucracy who really do not like him and don't like his approach. They they don't like the way he kind of tries to engender personal loyalty in his team. And there are a number of times in the in the earlier books where they uh, they have some very pointed comments to make about Nichols. What's interesting about that, because on its surface, it's just kind of the normal bureaucracy field ops divide that you see so commonly in the genre. But if you look very closely at some of what they're saying, the later books actually do bear them out. Uh-huh. It's not all just sour grapes or these people who are trapped behind a desk and don't understand the reality of field work and so forth. They are actually pointing to uh, fairly legitimate flaws in Nichols' character that do play out in later books with significant consequences to everyone involved. And I I like that kind of... uh, I like that way of kind of bringing that in in a way that's familiar and yet doing it in a way that's very different uh, to the way that generally comes across in the genre uh, as just kind of baseless yeah. accusations. And with Nichols' case, they're not baseless. <laughs> right, uh, right. 
Do you have an end in mind for the Shadow Warrior series and for Nichols' journey? Not not hard not hard and fast, no. I know where the next few books are going. But okay. no, I do I do not have a, a concrete uh, sense of, of the end. So time time will tell. Yeah. Is this something that you think you sort of want to keep it going on as long as you can, or would you eventually like to get to some end? I think at this point, keep it going. We'll we'll see what we'll see how I'm feeling about that. Three or four or five or more books down the line. Right. But I think I think I'll keep it going for quite a while to come. So, I definitely I definitely have ideas for quite a few more books in the series. So, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Keep it coming for a while. I mean, so you are, I think, frankly, one of the most well-read people that I know. I mean, seeing your uh, surveys of of the classics and and ancient history that you've done over the years is something that you just really don't see people do anymore. And, you know, I know you and I are both big fans of George Martin yeah. and, and, and his work. Uh, do, do you think it's important to sort of, if you're writing in this genre, to sort of read extensively outside of it, especially through the classics and history? And you, what, what has that brought into your writing? I think it can be. Uh, I think, I, I don't know that I would say it's essential, but I think you definitely get, uh, you definitely get aspects of, uh, kind of a, a, a way of looking at things that you wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, uh-huh. I, I remember, I think it was one of our conversations, uh, probably over lunch a couple years ago, when I, I commented about Presence of My Enemies, and I said, well, I've been uh, I've been reading Greek tragedies all summer, and readers are going to understand uh, the impact that's had when they read this book. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think definitely there... There's a useful, there's a way yeah. in which kind of stepping out of the the modern world and the modern way of looking at things can uh, lend itself toward trying to develop characters yeah. that you're you're able to portray different points of view with I think a little bit be, a little more validity or a little at least in a way that's more interesting if you've kind of brought yourself out of your own comfort zone and and read widely. Uh, and then there's just all the little details uh, that you find yourself coming across and you're just like, oh, I never would have thought about this. Uh, I, I, There's one example, which I trust this won't be uh, too, too graphic for this podcast, but there's, there's one example in Windbreak. Uh, there's a scene, Windbreak takes place in the Philippines and there's a, a hostage situation with American missionaries who are taken hostage by uh, by uh, Islamic State affiliated militants in the Southern Islands. Yeah. And there's a scene late in the book when uh, one of the hostages, one of the Filipinos that's taken prisoner along with the with the American missionaries is beheaded by uh, by the ISIS militants. And it had never occurred to me because I am a sheltered Westerner who's never thought through something like this. It never occurred to me uh, the mechanics of well, okay, now you've got a head there. Yeah. And well, what if well, what if the person doesn't have long hair? Well, how, how do you go about picking that up? Yeah. And I was led to think about this, and then to end up writing it a certain way in the story, because about six months before, I had been reading through. I think it was Tacitus. I'm not. 
entirely certain, but uh, the year of the three emperors. I'm forgetting the name because I do not re- I do not actually uh, retain everything I read. Uh, but one of the emperors uh, in the year of the three emperors was rather old and completely bald. And I believe it is Tacitus that records that they had significant issues with his head once it was separated from his body. It's when you stick it onto something. <laughs> Uh, that I, that <laughs> might be what they ended up doing with it, but but just that thought of what happens here is not something you would pick up in most no. ordinary reading, and I certainly would be personally happy to, happy to yeah. never encounter it again, uh, because it was a fairly uh, it was a fairly gruesome moment, even as in uh, Tacitus's very sterile uh, retelling of it. But it's one of those things that. You don't think about it because it's not part of your world. Well, then you go read a lot of history and you're like, okay, well, but for some people this is a part of their world and they share details that you would, wouldn't cross your mind otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Always a fun day when you start Googling the the inner mechanics of beheading someone. But I guess that's the, that's the business that we're in. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't think I've ever had to do that specifically, but yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not fun, let me tell you. When you really no, start considering no. stuff, it's like, yeah, it's it's something to get this scene done with yeah. and, and, and move on. Um, yeah. It's the type, type of stuff that can keep you up at night. Yes. Then we pass those things on to our readers because we love them. Yeah. I mean, I think they should know what they're getting into. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't pretend that this is, you know, some some lighthearted romp. Right. And I, I do think there's a level at which, and I, this may play into something you're going to talk about later, but I do think there's a level at which I don't like indulging in the blood just for the shock value of it. I, right. I, don't, I don't have a lot of fondness for that. Mm-hmm. And yet we are writing about a very serious topic that has claimed a lot of lives in a lot of very gruesome ways in just the last 10 years, and still does to this day. I mean, the the Taliban retaking Afghanistan has been no picnic for anyone involved. So I think there is a responsibility to to delve into it in enough of a way to say, okay, the, this, this isn't the A-team where people get shot and no one dies this is this is real this is real life and the consequences are real yeah well i think that's a that's a good segue maybe we should uh get into it which is you know the ethics of writing in this genre this is something that i've wanted to have someone on here to really talk about for since i really got involved with the podcast yeah in an earlier episode i was talking to chris and uh about you know the example of People using a scene from 24, you know, like, okay, there's a nuke in Los Angeles that's going to go off in an hour. And, you know, wouldn't you torture someone in that sort of situation? And that example from a fictional TV show being used to sort of justify real world policies, you know? And so I look at that and I think about a lot of people who read books like the stuff that you and I write. It's the most extensive look at international relations and the military and geopolitics that they'll ever get. And I think we can easily do them a disservice by projecting these issues, these very complex, nuanced geopolitical issues involving ancient cultures and religions so much older than our own as something very simple that, you know, this action hero kind of character with a Glock and a few pounds of C4 can go off and solve. And people, people read, I think people read some of these books and they think, you know, well, why can't, you know, why can't someone just go, just go clip Putin in the Kremlin? You know, why can't we just yeah. send someone to do that and just end the war? And I, I think there's, there's real responsibility that we have to, to show the world 
for as gray and complicated and just messed up as it actually is. How do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, yeah, why, why don't we just assassinate Putin and the war in Ukraine's over with? Well, there's right. probably three or four or five or 12 dozen people as bad or Putin and, or worse than Putin uh, in yeah. the in the Russian leadership. And yeah, I mean, I, I carry no water for Vladimir Putin. But he's he's not the worst man in Russia, and uh, no, he's not. And getting rid of, and, and getting and getting rid of him likely doesn't actually change anything for the better. And so yeah, not not everything can be handled. Uh, I mean the the old joke about it when you, all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, not everything actually can be handled that way. Yeah, and a lot of time and a lot of times you you find yourself not really understanding what you're getting into or the likely outcome of it. I mean, it's something it's something we've uh, understood increasingly uh the more the more we learned about Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh you read countless accounts of scenarios in which we we went in, we did something that would at least on the face of it have not uh seemed too far out outside the box for our genre, a direct action raid, uh, we went in, we got the bad guys, we killed them, we put them down, whatever. And two months later, we figured out that the person that had been reported to us by the trusted local sources, because they were these were the bad guys and they were affiliated with Al-Qaeda, there was actually this longstanding clan grudge going back like two, three, four, five generations, and they took advantage of us to get rid of their rival. And that's just that's just one small example and very localized example of how things can start going completely wrong with, as I said before, the the best inten- the best of intentions. Yeah. I mean, sure, you, you, you want you want to go kick down doors and, and uh handcuff bad guys, but you may well find yourself in a situation where you don't you don't even know quite what you're getting into or who the bad guys are and and that's i think one thing that this genre struggles with and i don't think i'm not even sure i've found too much of a way to get around it because the book has to happen and not to not to be too blunt about it yeah but it, the the genre very much falls into the trap of we have this intelligence, this is intelligence is right, this is now going to happen. And in the real world, it is just so much murkier, and it takes so much more time, and even the best of authors really struggle to, to portray that. Uh, I thought one author who's uh, done it far better than most, uh, largely as a result of his own, his own experiences in Afghanistan, is uh, Matthew Criscio. He, his his novel Security Day is is fantastic and uh, really a great look at a at a situation where the the alliances are muddled and and murky and there is just no no real good outcome. Uh, but by and large, the genre struggles with that uncertainty. We we, we want to. We want to know that the ticking bomb is where the intel says the ticking bomb says it is because we want to move on to the scene where they defuse the ticking bomb with five seconds left on the very visible clock. Right. And we we struggle with we struggle with the randomness of well the bomb isn't where they said it is and it blows up in a crowded market five blocks over while we're searching the empty house. That that's the sort of stuff that. I think it comes back to, in some ways, 
a novel has to make sense. The real world does not has no obligation to make sense, and typically doesn't. Uh, and I think getting that randomness into into the a fictional narrative that nevertheless has to cohere in some sense is difficult. And yet, we do have some uh, we do have some obligation to not fall into the CSI trap where you have people on on juries acting in ways that are just like, well, we can't convict this guy because the evidence isn't up to the level of the evidence I saw on the TV show last night. I mean, right. it's just, there, there's very much a similar, uh, there's very much a similar uh, dynamic at work in this genre in the sense of how it's, it how people have, uh, how people have viewed uh, the real world. And you see that particularly uh, in, in the genre. I, I spoke earlier that a lot of this genre either falls into the camp of um, American patriotic superhero or uh, evil government conspiracy. You see a lot of that uh, impact as well because in the novel, people... Uh, <laughs> In the, in the novel, there's these great sweeping conspiracies that all manage to stay amazingly secret until the, the lone uh, insightful hero picks up on it. And uh, that, I mean, the government leaks like a sieve. If, if, there, if there were such conspiracies, they'd be on the front page of the New York Times the following day. It's just the, the government doesn't do a good job of keeping the of keeping things secret when it's trying very, very hard. And I, I think that's one aspect in which the genre has really done the real world a disservice uh, in, in projecting that sense of uh, how easy it is to keep secrets, to cover things up. I mean, to, to take just one real world example, uh, the Israelis have more experience in the direct action, assassination, uh, targeted killing field than probably pretty much any government on the face of the earth and probably Definitely. more than most of them combined. Particularly if you're thinking of actually doing it with human, ag human agents and not like doing it from a drone. And yet... It was a few years ago, the, the Mossad takes out a guy in, I think it was, was it Dubai? I'm trying to recall the details now. Yeah, it's Dubai. Yeah, and their guys get flagged not long after they get out of the country, and it goes all over. Their passports were bad, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But I'm just, you, you look at a story like that, and you're like, okay, we dumb a lot of this down for the genre, but, and because we have to, because it quite frankly, wouldn't be fun if we didn't. But one of the things it leads to is people thinking that this stuff is really easy and, well, of course you just do this because that's the easiest thing to do. Where in the real world, a government that's had decades of practice at this thing still doesn't manage to keep it under wraps in what, by the stakes of the genre, would be a very low-stakes killing. Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, that's like a scene... Yeah, it's seen and you move on with the rest of the book. But in that case, it was something that just completely unraveled uh, till till people were in serious hot water. I think I think something similar happened with the CIA uh, 
trying to think how many years ago that was, but Italy, uh, rendition flight got in all kinds of hot water. Uh, people got charged for that. Yeah. And it's just another classic example of something that in a book would go completely flawlessly, but in real life, uh, the sand got in the gears and it, <laughs> right. it ended badly for everyone involved. Yeah. So you were, uh, most of your books in this series so far have been kind of, uh, really kind of focused on the global war on terror, you know, and a lot of those sort of interstitial issues around it. Um, we've talked in the past, you and I, about how it's sort of moving more into the world of great power politics, you know, Russia, China, India, perhaps a climate crisis. What sort of interests you about exploring those topics? Well, I think... Uh... I think it's something that's definitely dominated more and more of uh, of the public attention uh, in the last half decade or so. Uh, I think to some extent people uh, people find themselves gravitating toward uh, different enemies because we we kind of want we we kind of want an enemy that's more uh, competent, let's say, than the average uh, jihadist cell. Though, as I as I delved into with Wildcard, incompetent terrorists can be fun to write about too. Because some because sometimes they don't have to be all that competent to become to come uh, scarily close to actually succeeding. Uh, but I but I think there's a measure of that. I think that's pr- that motivation's probably been undercut a little bit by uh, by the last year uh, with the revelation that the Russian military isn't quite the twelve foot tall tiger that's uh, sometimes been it's been made out to be in the genre. Uh, which is which is not to say that some of their uh, special ops units aren't still a credible threat uh, by all means, right. but it's uh, I, I think it's something that I've been interested in, uh, and it's something I've explored in uh, Presence of Mine Enemies, and then in uh, Soon Dies the Day, where you see where you see great power competition very much interfacing with the war on terror. And you see you see groups getting funded from interesting places. You see active measures, uh, not to uh, borrow the name of your own book, but you see you see active <laughs> measures uh, yeah. taking, uh, taking a hand in ways that uh, wouldn't be obvious to most people on the surface is, okay, this, this, is, the, this is the group involved here. And uh, so I think I've been interested in, in it in that sense. I don't think I'll ever, uh, I don't think I'll ever be uh, moving on to uh, to a sense of of writing about uh, tank divisions clashing with each other. But I, I very much find the I find the interplay of uh, traditional intelligence services in the mix quite quite fascinating. And uh, sometimes, as I get into with soon dies the day, uh, sometimes very. Uh, very competing intelligence services. I uh, I describe uh, I describe Russian intelligence in Soon Dies the Day. Uh, I'm trying to remember the quote now. It's uh, many chapters back, but some something I, I describe it as a fratricidal system that where the right hand only knows what the left hand is doing by dint of 24 hours in surveillance. That's fair. And uh, so, kind of portraying that uh, sense of where it's not just different national intelligences intelligence services competing but it's also even uh in some countries it's even a very uh fratricidal relationship between the various uh, entities within the country can be quite interesting to explore and delve into yeah yeah very interesting now we have uh talked a bit about you and i just offline about you know the the issue of ai artificial intelligence chatbots being used to essentially ghostwrite 
you know, scenes or whole chapters <laughs> from novels with plugging in a few little details and stuff. What do you, what do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, how do you, how do you see that being, I don't know, a thing at all? I, I hesitate to dismiss it out of hand because, like most technology, it's going to get better. Uh, yeah. What I've seen of it to date, I don't think there's anything to worry about too much in the near term. It's pe- people are as I as I made a comment to uh, to someone a few weeks back. Right now, people are not suffering from a lack of reading material. Yeah, they're they're suffering from a lack of good reading material, and I think the AI is going to have to develop a lot before it can actually compete with better authors in the genre. There's there's definitely probably going to be some people who are leaning very hard into just kind of writing everything according to the tropes and rushing it out the door uh, to make a quick buck, which I really want to tell them that if making a quick buck is their goal in life, being an author is really doing it on hard mode. I mean, if you want, if your goal in life is just to make money, you can do that so many ways, so much easier yeah. than writing books. Start a crypto scheme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't see I don't see that there's a lot of uh, a lot of need to worry just yet. That that can that might change. But right. at at this point I I don't think uh, I think I think when we had this conversation offline my comment to you was that if they if they come up with an, an AI that's as evil as you or I, we'll have bigger problems than what's happening with the fiction market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be an issue. Yeah, I think our little books will really matter at that point. Um, so when we were talking last night, I mentioned that I had a surprise for you. Yeah. So along that line of AI, I asked ChatGPT, an AI bot, I queried it, I said, Please write a scene from a spy thriller novel in the style of Stephen England. You want to hear what it said? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Okay. You ready for this? All right. All right. Go for it. Here we go. I'll read it for you. Logan crouched in the shadows, watching the target through his night vision goggles. He was perched on a rooftop overlooking a heavily guarded compound, waiting for the signal to strike. His mission was simple. Infiltrate the compound, extract the high value target, and get out before anyone knew what had happened. But as Logan surveyed the scene below, he knew it was going to be anything but simple. The compound was surrounded by high walls and razor wire, with armed guards stations at every entrance. There were even rumors of an elite private security force patrolling the perimeter, armed with state-of-the-art weapons and equipment. But Logan was a shadow warrior, and he had faced tougher challenges before. He took a deep breath and focused on the task at hand. The signal came in over his earpiece, and Logan sprang into action. He darted across the rooftop, leaping from one building to the next with practiced ease. He landed on the edge of the compound wall and used his grappling hook to scale it. As he reached the top, Logan spotted a guard patrolling the wall. He waited until the guard was facing away, then dropped down behind him and took him out with a swift, silent strike. Logan slipped over the wall and made his way towards the target's location, moving quickly and quietly. He took out guards with lethal precision each strike executed with cold, calculated efficiency. Finally, he reached the target's cell. <laughs> the door was heavily reinforced, but Logan was prepared for that. He produced a small device from his pocket. Notice it doesn't say what the device was. A small device <laughs> from his pocket and attached it to the lock. There's no branding, man. That's disappointing. No. No, how do you sell hatchets and AR-15 accessories if you're not going to go into it? 
With a few taps on his keypad, the lock disengaged. Logan slipped inside and found the target. It was a man, bound and gagged but alive. Logan released him and helped him to his feet. Let's get out of here, Logan said, and they made their way back towards the wall. But as they approached, Logan heard the sound of approaching footsteps. He turned, he turned to face the sound and saw the squad of elite security guards advancing towards them. Weapons at the ready, Logan grinned. This was going to be fun. So what do you think, Stephen? <laughs> are your are your timbers shivered? Are you going to hang up the cape? Uh, uh, maybe not quite yet, but uh, yeah, we might we might need to be worried. Uh, oh no! <laughs> I, I really do wonder though, because uh, there were there were a couple things in there that kind of sounded like something I might write, but then the the whole ending with this is gonna be fun. Yeah, I'd I'd never write that. So yeah, no, I don't know. I think I think it no. needs a little more work. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's it, it reads to me like it almost reads like a montage, you know? Like there's no detail, yeah. there's no soul, there's no life, there's no nothing. It's just very like paint by numbers, which for a lot of people, I mean, yeah, I guess that's 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 what matters, you know? It's it's very it's that excerpt and a lot of the others I've encountered are very much this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this yeah. happened. And yeah. there's not a lot of there's not a lot of meat or as you say, soul to uh to how it happens or 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 why or any yeah. of the details there. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I, yeah. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll work on a little bit more. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'll 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 get better. But for now, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not concerned. One thing I thought about this though. Who for this scene that I just read? Who owns the copyright to that? Mm, exactly. Yeah. I didn't write it. I prompted it. But do like yeah. the developers behind this chatbot? Do they own it? Like, how does that? How does that work? I don't really know the details of it, and I also I and I've seen several other people raise this issue as well. Like there's a there's a historian uh, blogger I follow. Uh, just he he posts about uh, uh, different uh, military and his, history uh, aspects. Uh, has some has some great. Uh, I believe his name is Brett Devereaux. Has some great. Uh, Great blog posts on the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, analyzing them from a military historian point of view. Uh, okay. And someone had someone had done like a Chat GPT write write me a write me an essay on the Roman legions in the style of Brett Devereaux. And yeah. he he raised the question. I mean, he he thought it was kind of entertaining, but he raised the question there of, okay, there there's definitely some things in here that have been trawled from my site. Uh how are the how how do the permissions work of that? I mean, exactly, exactly. He 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 did he hadn't uh, he hadn't uh, given license for that stuff to be used. Now, who 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 knows? Maybe we'll find that we all agreed to it back in some toss we clicked through without reading it all. But uh, right, it it does it does uh, it does raise a lot of very interesting uh, legal questions, both on the output end and on the input end. Really? Yeah, I mean, oh. if you assembled if you assembled a novel with scenes like this, and someone will, I'm sure someone yeah, has yeah. already done it, and you release it, do they own the copyright? I don't know that they do. <laughs> it, it would be uh, it would be very interesting to to see that uh, to see that uh, yeah. go to court and be challenged. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I don't know enough about it to to speculate. Yeah. but it would be, yeah. be fascinating to see. All right. Well, coming up, last couple things here. If you had I'm sure there's someone listening who, you know, 
they've been reading spy fiction for a long time and maybe they're retired or they're just sort of getting into it. They're young like we are, you know, and they want to start it. What, what, what advice would you have for an aspiring writer looking to get into this genre? I, w- I would say I would say read the genre voraciously. Learn what works, what doesn't. It's it's not going to. I mean, be, being an avid reader of the genre won't make you a good writer of it, but you'll be hard pressed to become a good writer of it without doing that. As as one of the steps, at least. Yeah. And then I'd I'd say just practice. I mean, th- those first attempts. My attempts, probably your attempts too, were like etch a sketch. It was, oh, it was, yeah. it was, it, it was trying to, uh, it was trying to imitate what you've seen done, and it just, <laughs> it was, it was a mess. But you, you learn, you learn the mechanics of things that way, and you learn how to kind of break things down and approach things and say, okay, well, it was done this way, and this author I like, and oh, I could do it differently, and and you just. You start playing with it and seeing what's possible, and I don't think there's—I think there's probably some easier ways to go about that. I mean, I, I'm not going to tell anyone that they—they they can't learn through creative writing courses or other other helps. Uh, but I—I I think it—I think at some point it all does come down to you've got to put in the time trying. Yeah, and. It doesn't matter how many helps you use or how many shortcuts you take. You still got to come back down, sit in front of the computer, and hammer it out, and be self-critical enough to know when to throw it away. Uh, there's really just no substitute for for that for that work. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to cover that we haven't gotten to? Oh, uh, so I think uh, we touched briefly uh, earlier on uh, on soon dies the day, and we were t- we were talking a little bit about the the backdrop of that. So that story uh, is, an, is an interesting one because the, the core premise of Soon Dies the Day as it exists today is it centers around what's essentially a fairly elaborate coup attempt in Germany uh, put on by uh, German ultranationalists. And what's been kind of ironic and troubling and annoying because sometimes real life annoys you writing this genre is that yes. Germany Germany has had two coup attempts since I started writing the book or should I say coup, more more like coup plots they never got to the point of attempts they because got, they got coup, coup curious that's a tongue twister for you <laughs> okay yes they were very, they were very coup, coup, coup yeah yeah right, right? Anyway, that's a tongue twister too <laughs> uh coup curious uh but to, to the point where in uh, 2020, uh, Germany disbanded uh, a significant portion of their uh, army's elite commando unit, the KSK, because they, uh, they were found to have uh, some disturbingly uh, dangerous political tendencies and had been involved in working their way toward plotting a coup. Uh, then there was the more, kind of more hilarious one than this uh, past year, late December, I think it was, uh, where there was another plot uncovered to actually put a, a figure of German royalty that no one had knew even existed on the throne of Germany. Yeah. And I found myself kind of a little bit sad that I hadn't gone that route with the book because that seemed, that's one of those things that would have seemed way too bizarre land to do, but such is the world we live in. 
uh, fiction has to make sense, the real world doesn't. But what's but what the interesting thing is of Soon Dies the Day is that it has been in, uh, not only has it taken way too long to write, it's not the first time I've written it. Because this story actually started uh, way back in 2008 for me. And it was the first Shadow Warriors book that I ever actually got to book length. I think it ended up like 450 pages or so. And that was really the book that, to tie back into our earlier discussion of my process and how things kind of came to be, that was really the book that proved to me that Shadow Warriors could be a thing. It wasn't going to just... It, it was really the first book that exploded past that 110, 115-page mark and just took over. And it was a very elaborate plot. It was mostly set in Germany, uh, in involving uh, basically German neo-Nazis. And at that point in time, it was very much more the kind of the Clive Cussler-type Indiana Jones type connection of uh, neo-Nazis and uh, a very different story than it's it's been on the rewrite. I That was really the book that sent me back to the drawing boards of, okay, I've got this book, but it isn't an origin story for Nichols. Where do I begin? So I started on the road that ultimately led me to Pandora's grave. And really ever since then, ever since 2008, I've been trying to work my way back to this book. <laughs> <laughs> and yet by the time I got here, uh, when I when I wrote Presence of My finished Presence of My Enemies a few years ago, by the time I got here, I had known for some years that okay, that book was that book was perfectly fine and acceptable when I was eighteen and it was really the first book I looked at and like, okay, that's done, that's good. I'm not going to throw that away. But the series has changed. My vision for the series has changed. My writing style has changed dramatically in the last uh, 15 years. Uh, anyway, <laughs> not wanting to think about how long 2008 was, uh, how long ago 2008 was. Uh, but so I really had to go back and start from scratch. Uh, there was a World War II connection in the original story that, I would love to explore in a book in the future. I think it would be really cool to do. Yeah. But it was not going to fit with the tone of the series. And I, I, it took me a good while to decide to chop it out, but I, I ultimately chopped it out to say like, ah, that, that, that doesn't work anymore. And, uh, and really tr had to redesign the book, uh, pretty much entirely from there. Uh, there, there's not a lot of the original book left other than the, the German setting and the nationalist uh, connection there. But that really... Uh, and then, of course, now that I'm actually back there, uh, the German nationalist uh, right is doing things that they weren't even dreaming of doing in 2008. <laughs> so it's uh, it's been an interesting journey in that regard. I'm, I'm hoping it will be done here, maybe even this week. I'll tempt fate by saying that. Uh, that, 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 that could be another three-day literary operation that takes me till summer. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's a special literary operation, let's call it that. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it's been an interesting journey and interesting to kind of watch the world change, uh, certainly change dramatically since I first wrote that story back in 2007, 2008, 
and then even as watching it change as I'm rewriting it uh, in these years, I mean, the the original story didn't didn't uh, involve a coup plot. I I quickly worked my way around to that as I started uh, as I started designing uh, the rewrite. But then, okay, here's here's two actual coup plots, and what are the odds yeah. of that happening? <laughs> so so yeah, it's it's one of, it's been an interesting uh, been an interesting process. But I I've been uh, I've been pleased to work through it and uh, hopefully get it done and get it through editing here very soon and nice. get it out to my get it out to my readers who have been waiting far too long for it. So <laughs> I think it'll be yeah. a uh, a good example of what we were saying the ethics in this genre of showing the world for how it is and not just how we and our readers might want it to be. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- I think it's been an, it's been an interesting uh, been an interesting process in in that because. I always I always approach a story and say, okay, I I know what I'm, I know what I want to do here. I have a fairly good grasp of the subject, and then I start reading it. At, I start reading and researching, and I say, I I didn't know the first thing about the subject, and so each each book is very much an education for me, and in, uh, in trying to learn how all the all the nuances of things come together and can hopefully be ins- instilled and in, or distilled into a an exciting story so yeah very nice well i think you and i could easily go for another hour or two <laughs> uh we'll have to have you back on when soon dies today comes out sounds like a plan matt i appreciate this yeah it's been a fun conversation steven where can listeners find more about you and your work amazon's the best place just uh, search search for my name and search for my books and you'll you'll find pretty much all of them <laughs> sure All right. Well, I hope they certainly do that. Stephen England, thank you so much. All righty. Thank you so much, Matt. Have a good one. for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. <laughs>